Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. All right, Miss Wolf, I've looked over your tests and I have some very bad news. What is it, doctor? Anderson Cooper is buying the house next to mine. No, I mean about my tests. Well, you'll never play trampoline dodgeball again. What? I was at the top of my game. I was dominating that sport. Just patch me up and get me back out there, Doc. Patch you up? Look at you. Your arm is hanging from your shoulder by those stringy things. You mean tendons? I'm not 100% sure. They might be sinews. Or what's the, uh, the other one? Ligatures? Ligaments. Are you sure you're a real doctor? No. Are you a real patient? I'm kidding. Of course I have my MD from the University of... I'm sorry, from where? That's the name of it. The University of... You should hear our fight song. Is there anybody else here that I can see? You just need to find a new sport. Your arm is shot, and look at that stuff oozing out of your middle leg place. My knee. Is that the technical term? You should take up Thorball. What's that? You hit a bell with a hammer. That's the whole game? Believe me. With your problems, it's the decathlon. There must be other new sports I can take up, so let's listen to a show about that. And now, the father of Nerf chicken fighting, Colin McEnroe. Before you leave, I want you to look at this x-ray. Okay. If you had to guess, would you say that one's the liver? God help us. That sounds like a terrible doctor. hope he's not the company doctor. All right. So we are talking today about kind of – well, some new sports and some very, very ancient mm, sports, physical activities. kind of difficult to say. But a lot of this, although towards the end of the show, one of the things that we're going to be talking about is the fact that that some sports are just – people make up sports all the time. In fact, that's how pickleball, the first sport that um, that we're going to talk about, uh, came into existence. People, you know, people back in 1965 on Bainbridge Island decided to make up their own little game and it actually did sort of hang on and it's gotten really big. But then there are other sports that people make up and only just a few people ever play them. But they, they are out there and thanks to YouTube, you can watch people playing most of them. So in our final segment, you will hear about some of the weirdest sports most of them played by highly inebriated people uh, that uh, that you have ever – I mean more than you've ever dreamed of. It just – I don't know. I can't even characterize it. I can't even talk about it right now. So – but part of the other theme is I think for a lot of us – and I'm in this category. Uh, I'm, I'm going to be turning 60 later this year. Uh, I played basketball and soccer well into my 30s and, and maybe in one of those sports, early 40s. But my knees are shot right now and I've got a partial tear of my rotator cuff and you know, certain things are a little bit more difficult for me to do. And so I, you know, I found other things to do. I do, I do a lot of you – know, I've done a lot of bicycling as most people know over the last few years. And, and, but I'm also I'm keeping my eye out. Like, what are my other sports? What are some sports that I can do that would be good for me uh, and, and, and would fit maybe a little bit more into my capacities which – are going to narrow a little bit. I mean, in between here and 85, you know, there's just there's going to be some things that are progressively more difficult to do. But I want to have fun and I want to play games and I want to be active. Well, 
You're going to hear uh, in just a second about Tai Chi, which kind of fits into that. Uh, you may have seen the piece in uh, Slate saying Tai Chi is the new yoga. Of course, the Tai Chi isn't the new anything. Tai Chi has been around a really long time. But before we do that, let's talk about the aforementioned pickleball. Uh, the New York Times seems to feel it necessary to run a new story uh, about the surging qualities of pickleball. About once a month, there's a story in the New York Times about pickleball, as if it's the first time they've ever printed anything about it. So joining us right now is Joe Valenti of Rochester, New York. He is a nationally ranked pickleball player and president of the Valenti Sports Pickleball Club, which has over 660 players. He's hosting the National Indoor Pickleball Tournament on August 1st to the 3rd. It's incredibly enjoyable just to say pickleball. But Joe Valenti, there may be people listening right now thinking, saying, what? <laughs> Pickle what? What is that? So, you know, in a nutshell uh, or a thumbnail or whatever medium you choose, tell people what pickleball is. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I, I felt the same way about three years ago for the first time when I heard what pickleball was. Uh, once you get over the funny name, uh, it's a combination of tennis, ping pong, and even badminton. It's also um, you know, called a, a mini tennis game. So basically you're on a badminton-sized court. You're using a, uh, a paddle that's a little bit bigger than a ping pong paddle, and you're using a perforated ball, which is like a wiffle ball, um, and you're hitting a ball over a net like a tennis net. So it's a combination of those, uh, those three sports. Or, you know, in the Northeast, we play platform tennis. Mm-hmm. So it's, uh, it's, it's very similar to, to platform tennis, which is the, the caged-in uh, mini tennis game as well. So that's basically what pickleball is. It's like mini tennis or really big ping pong. And, and for some reason, it, it does seem to I, – I don't know how – you said maybe about three years ago in your case. There, we, it does seem to be having, as we keep saying on this show, a moment, right? Suddenly, pickleball is something people are talking about, people are taking up. And I assume part of it is because of this gigantic demographic cohort that's moving into their 60s and maybe moving a little less fluidly. Yeah, that's exactly it. You've got this huge demographic of – People, you know, in, in your age group or my parents' age group in their 60s who don't really want to play basketball or soccer anymore or, or tennis is getting a little bit tough on the knees uh, and the court's a little bit too big. So they uh, maybe they go to the villages in, in Florida where, um, you know, they vacation for a while or, or out in Arizona during the winter months, and they hear about pickleball and they see it and their friends are doing it and they get them to to get on the court and takes about 20 minutes to get acclimated to the sport i mean that's it 20 minutes to go from never playing pickleball to enjoying a sport that you can you could enjoy for the next 40 40 years so they're doing it uh, obviously to, to keep their bodies moving around and also there's a lot of fellowship there's a lot of social uh, enjoyment uh, there's a bunch of older gentlemen gentlemen who appear to be in their 70s and 80s uh, near where I live, who do play tennis, you know, or in the mornings on the public courts, and I'm very envious of them because they they can do that. But you can see that a lot of it is just the fun of getting together, and obviously, you know, any sport you can all enjoy and joke about and tease each other about is a great thing. But it sounds like there's also some other more hyper competitive pickleball playing. You clearly are not in that age co- cohort. So, what's pickleball to you? Well, I'm in my 30s. I'm 36, and you know, I'm tired of playing the the men's over 30 or men's over 40 soccer where 
you never know if you're going to make it to work on time the next morning <laughs> because you might be in the hospital with a torn ACL or a concussion because the guys you're playing against think it's the World Cup. So I was looking for something a lot more fun, a lot more entertaining, a lot more social. And I have three brothers. We all play. Uh, my parents play. So it's a family atmosphere game. And, and that's how it was designed 50 years ago, you know, out in Seattle, Washington area, the Bainbridge Island. The parents were watching the University of Washington football, and they said, hey, kids, let's go outside. You guys have some fun. We're going to watch the game. And they took a bunch of random parts from badminton and, and ping pong and drew up a court and said, here, go play. And it's really grown from that um, you know, kind of inception of, hey, let's just have fun. Let's go out there and get the hand-eye coordination. It's a real fast-moving sport with your hands, but not necessarily with your, with your legs. So at, at my level where we play, um, you know, we can still chase around almost every shot on a, such a small court, so the points last quite a while. And uh, it's just a lot of fun. That's, that's all I can say. It's addictive, and it's a lot of fun. We should mention uh, that legend has it anyway that that fa- family that started it all had a dog named Pickle, and hence the name. Uh, if the bo- dog, if the ball rolled off the court, the dog would uh, grab the ball, and it was uh, at that point Pickle's ball, right? Yeah, that's that's one of the uh, one of the legends of how it got its name. The other legend is uh, they were, you know, right there on the island. A pickle boat is a term used where you take a bunch of uh, oarsmen or crewmen and you that are remaining, and you put them on their own boat. Mm-hmm. So basically they took all these random parts from a badminton net and a ping-pong table and a wiffle ball, these three random things, and put them together, and they called it pickleball. So those are the two, two legends of pickleball, uh, the name at least. But it seems to the expansion is phenomenal now, right? I mean, I, I this thing that started very informally as kind of a family in joke uh, on an island off the coast of Washington is. I mean, I looked it up today. I live in West Hartford, Connecticut. There's pickleball. I could play pickleball there. I could play pickleball in the next town. And apparently, I could also play it uh, if I were in India, Singapore, New Zealand. Is that right, Joe Valenti? Is the is it an international sport now? It is the fastest growing sport in North America, and it could be the fastest growing sport in the world. This demographic isn't going away. So you take tennis players in, you know, you got Wimbledon going on right now. You got tennis players in England. They're just feeling, you know, I'm not as fast as I used to be. I want a game that I can, you know, have that that feeling of I can get every point. Every point matters, and it's not just uh, a serve and a, a swing and a miss, and that's it. So yeah, it's traveling all all over the all over the world. That is, it's amazing, and I really, it, it can only get bigger because, in fact, I was reading about, they have divisions, you know, you were talking about playing over 30 or over 40 soccer, been, been there, done that, tore the quadriceps tendon, uh, but, um, you know, they, for pickleball, they have like over 85 divisions, right? I mean, you can play it a really long time. Yeah, you can play it a really long time. The court is small, it's low impact, it's an underhand serve as opposed to tennis, you get a lot of a lot of shoulder injuries in tennis just from that that serving motion. So it's an underhand serve, low impact on the body. The camaraderie is there, and the uh, the physical activity is there. Although I did read, I mean, there are players who do do an overhead smash. I mean, you. Yeah, sure, <laughs> sure. You can you can hit an overhead smash, but the serve, the serving motion is underhand. So. 
All right, Joe Valenti, it sounds fantastic. We look forward uh, to, uh, I look forward to pickleball being, in fact, a combination of Tai Chi and pickleball could get me through the next decade or so. So uh, thanks for talking to us today. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we are not only going to talk about Tai Chi, we'll get sort of a, a small, brief, compressed Tai Chi lesson, and some of uh, WNPR's stalwarts are going to come in here and get that lesson. Lots of rallies. Lots of rallies. In pickleball Dink to the left Dink to the right Cobra and a lob Fight, fight, fight Pickleball is Pickleball is Pickleball is The best around All right, we're back. Uh, It's time to forget about pickleball, at least momentarily, uh, and to talk about uh, Tai Chi. Robert Qualick is here. Robert Qualick of Litchfield, Connecticut, a longtime uh, practitioner of young-style Tai Chi. He teaches a weekly class at Sharim Yoga and Fitness Studio in Litchfield. So, uh, Robert Qualick, it's probably harder to answer the question, what is Tai Chi, than it was to answer the question, what is pickleball, because Tai Chi is a whole bunch of different things. But when you do your thumbnail uh, explanation of it, what do you say? Well, I say it's a moving meditation, Colin. It is a martial art at its heart and at its root and in its um, uh, impetus, but but it is practiced for its health benefits primarily in America. And, and I mean, contained in the word, and I guess the, the longer term is Tai Chi Chuan, right? Yes, which means grand ultimate or um, opposite polarity boxing. And 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 but contained in that name is chi, and I think most of us or many of us do have that notion of chi as being some kind of life energy, right? So uh, yes, you're correct. Chi is uh, life force or universal energy. However, we have in the West called Tai Chi Chuan Tai Chi because we are attempting to cultivate and manipulate chi. But the word ji is actually different, and because the ch in G in one of the transliteration systems has been pronounced ch as opposed to j as in judge. We have changed the name in the West. Really, it should be called Tai Chi Chuan. And, and I want to come, go back to a couple of words you used there in, the, in that sentence, cultivate and manipulate. Are we in the West approaching this whole discipline differently than it would be traditionally approached? Only insofar as uh, we don't practice it as a martial art. Mm -hmm. And you'll see folks in parks early in the morning, some of them in their 60s and 70s, practicing what for them is primarily a physical activity and a meditation, and they may be devoid of knowledge of the martial applications. But in terms of the manipulation of chi, I think that's the same. Um, How long have you been doing it? I was introduced to Tai Chi Chuan by John Wei at the New School for Social Research in 1978. So... You do the math, 30 some odd years. And, and if you were to describe its impact on your life, what's different about you as a result of, of having done that? I mean, you've been doing it so long, it may be hard to separate yourself now from, from the discipline itself. But, but you know, what, what would you say? Well, I have to say I have the benefit of having gone away from it and come back to it. Mm. So I do have a very clear sense of the impact it has on me. And it helps me stay focused and centered and grounded and relaxed. And when I don't practice, those qualities in my personality tend to go away. 
Um, so what we're going to do here is, uh, I mean, and, and you can follow along at home. Uh, he, he'll do his best. Uh, first, well, before I even start this off, though, I mean, obviously, we're going to do a very short thing where people could just sort of get a general idea. If they were to go to one of your classes, how long a class is that? How much Tai Chi Chuan would, do we, would we be doing? All the classes at Shireem last for 75 minutes so that when folks buy a package of 10 or unlimited number of classes, they can use their package for yoga and the Tai Chi class if they want. So it's a 75-minute session, including a warm-up and then practice of what's called the form. Mm-hmm. Is there anything at the end like the equivalent of Shavasana where you just get to lie on the floor? There's generally conversation and cleaning up. (laughs) I always look forward to that part, the Shavasana part. But she, I mean, just for people who have done yoga, which I think is sort of more more people have done yoga than have done Tai Chi Chuan, the concept of prana in yoga is probably pretty close anyway, right? That same notion of some kind of life energy that you're you're trying to, to tap into. Yeah, I think that prana is associated primarily with breath, but it's larger than that. And chi mm. is larger than breath as well. It, it is considered a universal life force or the fuse that drives the green flower, as Dylan Thomas would say. And, and, and in terms of that, is it, are you simply cultivating, cultivating and manipulating what's already inside you? Or are you accessing chi that exists in an exterior sp- space and, and trying to kind of uh, ride that wave? Both. Both. Both internal and external. All right. So we're going to try to do this. Uh, I'm going to stand up. Uh, we're going to g- uh, give him a microphone so that he can uh, look at us while we're doing it. And so who's – are you going to do it, Wolfie? Oh, I was going to photograph it. Oh, she's going to photograph it. So, Brittany, you're going to do it? All right. Brittany. All right. So is this me and Brittany or is this Bessie going? No, Bessie's with the boys. Bessie's with the boys. Okay. So for starters, I'd like you to spread your feet so they're hip-width apart and soften your knees – and allow your spine to grow upwards like a blade of grass reaching towards the sun with your head floating at the top. In fact, you can separate the t- neck from the spine a little bit by working the head in a sort of figure eight so that you're growing upwards from the crown. And then if you'll sink down in your knees a little bit, we'll do three quick warm-up exercises. One is to just shake your hands. We're loosening things up and trying to get tension free and trying to open the meridians through which energy can flow in the body, those same meridians that an acupuncturist would try to open up through the use of needles. And then if you will, just twist your hips from side to side and let the arms flop. Don't shape the arms at all, but simply let the arms flop from side to side as you twist your hips. And then finally, as a warm-up, if you'll make some hip circles, but don't separate your spine from your pelvic bowl. Let the spine be included in the circle so it's as if you're painting a circle in the air with a paintbrush hanging down from your tailbone and that circle would be parallel to the floor. Now we're going to go very quickly through what's called the five elements form as developed by Tsongliang Huang of the Living Tao Foundation. The five elements that we're going to be moving through are fire, water, wood, metal, and earth. So first, sink down Bring your arms in and up as you inhale. And as you exhale, let the arms float down at the sides. And then imagine there's something palpable that you can grab in front of you and take a big scoop of it in as you step back and take that in towards your center and then press out with your palms and then let one arm float up and one arm float down as you mix yang and yin energy into your center or your dantian. 
And then once you have processed the yang and yin energy, you want to step forward. This is the fire element, as if you're sending the fire of you out into the world. It comes full circle back to you as the water element, raining down on you and nourishing you. And out of that water comes growth. So the third element is the wood element. You're going to walk around yourself in a circle. Your legs are like the trunk of a tree. Your arms are like the branches waving in the wind. And as you come back front, one arm will scoop back. This is the metal element, as if you're picking up coins from the bottom of the sea, from a sunken treasure chest, and you're dropping those coins into your Taiji piggy bank. This metal element gives way to the earth element, where you allow the arms to swing down and recoil upwards, touching base with the earth below and the sky above. The arms come down, and then rise back up as if energy is coursing through you that's being processed through your body but coming from the earth. And then this last gesture, Tsong Liang refers to as embrace tiger, your hands cross in front of your chest and then sink down and return to mountaintop. Embrace tiger, return to mountain is also the name of Tsong Liang's most seminal book on the teaching of Tai Chi. So that's the five elements form that you've just gone through. That was fast. That was really good. All right, I'll go back to the microphone. Okay. I think I want to try pickleball. Yeah. <laughs> okay, thanks so much to Lydia Brown for being, uh, what would you call that, sort of the audio engineer, the boom mic person, something like that. Thanks to Brittany Hill also for uh, joining us in here and being my partner at, at Tai Chi Chuan. So, Tai Chi Chuan. So, you know, when I watched you doing it warming up, uh, Robert Qualick, it seemed as though, and it often seems, I think, it w- if we're watching the people in the park or wherever we encounter this, that as opposed to to my kind of hopeless flailings, um, that that when people, that really does look like they're sort of pushing something that you can't see or pulling something that you can't see. It really looks like there's an invisible set of bubbles and forces and stuff that people are working <laughs> with. So tell me about that. That's an excellent observation. And there does have to be some intentionality to the practice. So I ask students to slow their thinking down enough to gain a visceral awareness of their relationship between their skin and the air so that they begin to feel that there is something palpable and substantive around them that they can play with. And so that your image of a bubble is is a very nice one. We do um, an exercise where it's as if we are holding a soap bubble and and moving with it. The pushing and pulling is is in a sense, the martial application of taking this energy around you and forcing it away or pulling it in towards yourself. And so the muscles are not in use in the way that, say, a boxer would use muscles. There's not a lot of muscular force, but certainly the the practice of the form has to include an intention about what is happening rather than it just be um, kind of a mushy dance. You know, um, one of the things that, that happened in yoga, I did yoga pretty intensively for about five years. And as Americans kind of Americanized yoga, they, well, they Americanized yoga. And so that meant it got more, almost a little bit more competitive. And you started hearing terms like power yoga, you know, power vinyasa flow, this sort of idea that that, that whatever this was, it was going to really be a workout form too uh, that was sort of recognizably sort of sweaty and, and full of exertion. And and after a while, you, then you got this sort of backlash of people saying, well, this isn't really what yoga is. And you guys are just, it's just aerobics or something. And you guys call it vinyasa. Um, it, it's, this one seems 
a little less amenable to that, a little more uh, uh, this discipline seems more rooted in what it is and, and, and less likely to be turned into sweating to the oldies or, or something like that. Well, so two things come up in, in what you say. One is that idea of uh, co-opting a practice and making it into something that is an exercise form for people. And that certainly has happened and will continue to happen, especially given that there are multiple styles of Taiji. Yang style is the style we see most in the West that looks like that very flowing slow motion movement. But other styles like the Chen style are much more percussive and practice much more quickly. In fact, there are Yang style forms that are practiced quickly with weapons. Um, I would say the style that I practice most in the uh, keeping with the teaching of Tsong Liang ha- has been westernized to some degree. So if you were to go to, say, the Yin Yang Tai Chi Chuan Academy in West Hartford, you would probably get a very traditional Tai Chi Chuan training experience. I teach in a way and I, I have to pay tribute to Tsong Liang because he developed this way of teaching, uh, that is much more amenable and accessible to a, a Westerner. So uh, I do think you will see some changes to Tai Chi, especially as it catches on and, and folks adding their own voice to it as they teach. All right, just continuing with my exploration of the, the yoga parallel. Another aspect to yoga is that, you know, I mean, almost inevitably, particularly if you're working with a teacher who's really been teaching for a long time, you're speaking some Sanskrit words and ultimately invoking some concepts that come out of Hinduism and that, you know, I mean, you can decide to make it more spiritual or less spiritual, but it is inherently um, spiritual. There, there are spiritual elements to it. There are elements that su- uh, certainly arise from very old traditions. And my guess is with Taiji Chuan also, you're, you're doing a set of physical activities, but inevitably also you're absorbing a philosophy at minimum, right? So can you elaborate on that a little bit? I mean, where, where else, besides just moving our body parts around, where else are we going? So I think one could practice Tai Chi just from a physical perspective, but as one goes deeper, one is inevitably going to be reading literature from uh, Chinese culture, Taoist literature specifically, um, the Tao Te Ching being the primary book. Uh, there, There is a connection to the physical environment and to nature specifically that a Tai Chi practitioner is going to have to incorporate into their work. In fact, the best place and time to practice is early in the morning outside where the, the air and the clouds and the birds are all readily accessible as points of of reference and reflection for the practitioner. I would say that for me, the practice of yoga and the practice of Tai Chi are both movement-based spiritual disciplines. And so uh, through the physicalization of this concept of yin and yang and their opposite polarities, uh, one begins to enter into taking a look at the world in a different way. And one will want to enhance that uh, new perspective through reading some Chinese literature. Now, there is a perception that Taoists practice Tai Chi and Tai Chi is a Taoist practice. There are certainly Taoists who practice Tai Chi, uh, but I would say that the two of those uh, things that we have distilled here in the West, because they are gems from the East, are not necessarily as connected as we might think. Although I would imagine, and this is a struggle for me when I'm doing yoga, and the one time I did uh, Tai Chi, which I did outside in the morning in a, <laughs> in a grove, um, is the whole monkey mind problem, right? Somehow or other, I, I, I'm a typical Western. I'm thinking about nine million things. And and this kind of practice I'm sensing works a lot better and is is more fully 
done. We only have about a minute left, so make your answer short. Okay. When, when, when you concentrate, right? Turn off the monkey mind? So to turn off the monkey mind, you have to focus on the breath. But you probably need to know a form, and the form I taught is a very short one and fairly accessible if you have any muscle memory. Once you know the form and you can focus on your breathing and stay in the moment or be here now, uh, you, you quiet the mind and your focus becomes on your body moving in space. All right. Uh, Robert Qualick, thank you so much for joining us. Robert Qualick of Litchfield. Uh, he uh, teaches a weekly class at Shareem Yoga and Fitness Studio in Litchfield. He could be your Tai Chi ma- master, or if you live somewhere else, find somebody else. Thank you so much for joining us uh, today to help us understand this. My pleasure, Colin. Thank you. All right. We've got Saul Nealman coming up. Very different kinds of sports after this. I got thrown out of a Tai Chi tournament for using radiant energy-enhancing supplements. Actually, it might have just been speed. Today's show was produced by Betsy Kaplan and me. Our interns are Allison Ehrenreich, Brittany Hill, and Devin Flabbergaster. Greg Hill tweets for us at WNPR Colin and introducing Haig Papazian as the crazy doctor in the intro. For show pages, articles, and videos of the Faith Middleton Show staff playing competitive napkin folding, visit our website, WNPR.org. On tomorrow's show, the world of nonverbal communication. And now, back to Colin. Well, you know, we've talked about some of the tamer new sports there are out there. We've talked about pickleball. We've talked about Tai Chi. But there's a frontier where people risk their lives, their reputations, their sanity to play sports that you've never heard of. And and the person who is absolutely everything that Marlon Perkins ever was to wildlife, Saul Nealman, is to weird sports. He is the chronicler and curator of them. He's the author of Weird Sports and the upcoming unpredictably titled Weird Sports 2. These are photo books. Uh, They're uh, published by a fine art publisher, Kara Verlag. Uh, He's with us, and so is Brandy Red. Brandy Reddick is um, a competitor in one of those weird, weird sports, and that is extreme pencil fighting. And so, Brandy, I think maybe we're going to start with you. And, and for people who can't even uh, paint a mental, mental picture in their own minds about this, explain what uh, extreme pencil fighting is all about. The sport of world extreme pencil fighting takes the schoolyard sport of pencil fighting and brings it into a stage show combined with pro wrestling. It is America's fastest growing death sport. This is when one person holds the pencil with one end in each hand, gripping in each hand, so it's held horizontally, while the other person strikes down with, uh, with right. another pencil. That's right. The World Extreme Pencil Fighting has some specific rules. So we have a defender and a striker, and our defender grips his or her pencil with two hands parallel to the ground, like you said, but they have to leave a space of not less than four pencil widths between their hands, so it's approximately an inch of striking area. And if they crowd in on the striking area, they can get a penalty. We also have some other penalty strikes that happen, too. But the striker holds his or her hand, typically like in a flicking motion, downward onto the striking area, 
of the defender and attempt to break the defender's pencil. But if they hit knuckles or if they whiff, again, that's a potential penalty. And for us, when you get a penalty called on you, you get up to five. When you get five penalties, you then get to strike against your defender using your homemade uh, penalty pencil. And my particular penalty pencil goes with my character. She is from the Far East, and she has a very skilled set of martial arts. Her pencil is two gigantic 15-inch novelty pencils that she drilled out and attached to each other via four-inch chain to make her signature pencil chucks. So she strikes not like the karate kid to break her defender's pencil on a penalty strike. You know, uh, with each breath that you take and each set of words that you say, this sport sounds less and less innocent. Uh, initially, it sounded like a kind of a, you know, a lovely extension of childhood now, of course. And so Saul Nealman, after what you've seen, the knuckle strikes that you've witnessed, the blood that, that probably you've seen spilled, would you ever subject yourself to the rigors of world extreme pencil fighting? Uh, no, I, I think I'm a little me. too smart for that. And I'm, I'm, I'm not the quite the uh, professional athlete that Brandy Reddick is. She's not just known for extreme pencil fighting, but she's also a, a reigning uh, roller derby queen. And in Seattle, she's, she's an icon. She's part of the weird sports culture in Seattle. You know, uh, Brandy, I did watch some fairly grainy footage of world extreme pencil fighting, and it does seem as though there is some of the posturing that goes along w- with with world re- world wrestling entertainment, right? I mean, there's a lot of the trash talk and strutting. There absolutely and- is. We do um, tag team wrestling. We do the lottery of the lead, where no one knows who will be facing who. It's a random drawing. And we also do my favorite, which is a cage match, where competitors <laughs> compete pencil fighting in an oversized birdcage. They put their hands in there and flip back and forth. <laughs> oh, my God. What are the worst injuries that you've sustained? I mean, have you have you been hurt by people either hitting you with pencils or, or those other alarming things that you were describing about sort of... The worst shattering I ever had was the shattering of my ego when the San Juan Island stole my championship belt from me. But other than that, it would have to be bloody knuckles, bruised hands, and probably a little bit of spittle from the trash talking. <laughs> what, what makes a great pencil fighter? In other words, is there a technique for bringing the pencil down so that the other person's pencils... I mean, are people measurably really a lot better than other people at this? There is absolutely a difference in uh, technique, and there are fighters who are better than others. People really develop their own techniques. Beginning people tend to break their own pencils on the strike. They go at it with way too much force. I personally choose to defend rather than strike, and I strike light, and I draw in very close to my chest, which makes male competitors a little hesitant sometimes because if they hit me, I might get that penalty strike on them. Watching the the greeny video that I've seen, it also seems as though there are some people who are just too timid, right? I mean, you can't have fear. You have to be willing to go for it. I don't understand what that word fear means. Could you explain that to me? Well, there are some people, yeah, who who actually hesitate about doing certain things because they foresee possible harm to themselves Mm. or to other people. Does that make any sense to you? No, I don't even understand that. It's fear is not in my vocabulary. Right. But have you ever seen other fighters who seem to be unwilling, really, to strike with full force or or to do what needs to be done? Maybe because even they're, they're, I I know this is going to be a very hard concept for you to wrap your mind around because they're actually afraid of hurting the other person. They're afraid of 
being hurt themselves. Mm-hmm. You will not hurt a pro graphiter. Now they're trained for this. I wanted to also quickly ask you, before we get to Saul and some of the other sports that he's chronicling, and without getting us in too much trouble, there are people, all of you who compete, the, you compete under certain colorful names. I mean, there's a, a world champion or perhaps former world champion whose initials are the same initials as happy birthday. I don't think we're going to mention that particular person uh, on this broadcast. <laughs> but, I mean, there are people, either both the teams and the individual competitors have uh, colorful names. Can you give us a few of those? Absolutely. We have from Tehran, Iran, we have the Graphite Sheik. We have the Penultimate Warrior. We have Betsy Threatsy. And we even have from another world a Ticonda robot who is an actual robot. My favorite is the $100 Man. <laughs> yeah. I, that, that would be my favorite, too. Now, where does this go on? Does it only go on in certain parts of the country? I'm se- sensing a Pacific Northwest flavor to all this, but is it is it more national than, than that? Our graphiters train worldwide to be a part of the World Extreme Pencil Fighting League, but we typically hold our events in Seattle. That doesn't mean we're not averse to traveling. Any invitations, we will meet you. You heard it here, uh, listeners to this show. There's no reason not to start this up here, and they are willing to fly out here and uh, teach you what true pencil fighting really means. I could see this becoming very, very big in Connecticut. So, Saul, I have to ask you a little bit more about weird sports in general, too. And Maybe we can come back to Brandy and talk a little bit about uh, roller derby as we wrap things up. We've had other roller derby people on, but it's interesting how big that's getting. You haven't had anyone like her on. I, I've, I I've, that right now. I've already actually divined that. Um, <laughs> we should talk about some of these other sports. Some of them appear to fall into the category of sports that no sober person has ever played. I mean, flaming tetherball, uh, which uh, you've chronicled and and there are videos i mean it really seems as though to play this game and not have had a lot to drink would be just almost uh, unthinkable but but explain about flaming tetherball not that it's a really complicated concept <laughs> but for those people who just can't imagine what flaming tetherball would be what, what is that well it started by a, a guy named rusty mm-hmm. oliver in seattle and uh, instead of a tetherball they uh, use a roll of toilet paper, and it's soaked in three ounces of cooking gas, white gas. It's lit on fire. Uh, of course, it's attached to a chain, and people play it with tennis rackets. It's not remotely dangerous. I'd just like to... <laughs> you know what? Honestly, it's not. The embers, when they land, don't really do anything. You're not going to have a Michael Jackson scenario for some of your older uh, listeners. But it's very surreal because when you start playing, the ball, as it were, is heavier and more predictable. Whereas as it burns off, it starts turning into a knuckleball. And if you can imagine trying to hit a knuckleball, okay, that's tough, mm-hmm. but then it's on fire. Right. But, you know, when you're busy drinking cheap beer, that's the least of your problems. Yeah, as I say, I, it's, it's almost unthinkable that any sober person has ever played this <laughs> it's game. It's bad for training. It's not the way to go. Right. And I think this is one of the situations where we can say, in full sincerity, kids, don't try this at home or anywhere else. Don't try it anywhere, actually. <laughs> Wait until you're at least, until you've had a life and experienced at most least, of the... Uh, legal drinking age. Yeah, yeah, and when you've experienced most of the things that, that count as life so that you don't mind if it ends abruptly. But now, you told me that your favorite among the sports that you chronicled, uh, we're talking to Saul Nealman uh, right now, and his, uh, his, he does the weird sports uh, books and the weird sports uh, feature sometimes in Wired.com. You said that a live monster... <laughs> I can't even say it. Live monster wrestling is your favorite So tell us about Live Monster Wrestling. Live Monster Wrestling, which was uh, one of the first weird sports that I photographed, 
well, it's, it's called Kaiju. It's based in Boston, and it's a performance art. And there's characters like Chicken Noodle Soup. There's, uh, I'm distracted by the names because the only one that Brandy and I care about really is French Toast. Okay. I do uh, like Dusto Bunny. Oh, Dusto Bunny. Yeah. And, and yes. I'm actually uh, Facebook friends with Dusto Bunny. So they build paper mache buildings within a boxing ring, wrestling ring, and they smash each other to bits with it. And it's, they're battling good and evil, and somehow the, the balance of the universe is tied to who wins or loses. But I really think with all weird sports, we all win. I don't think right. there's a single loser out there. Either we all win or we all lose. <laughs> Pretty I mean, much. It, it, the good thing is that all the fate of all humanity is tied together one way or the other, for good or bad. You know, there's so many things that we could conceivably cover here, but there are, uh, some of these sports seem to have been made up yesterday, and then, <laughs> you know, by people whose judgment was deeply impaired at the time. And then some of these sports have been around for a while. I mean, one of the things that you chronicle is wife carrying. Now, wife carrying is at least 20 years old, right? I mean, this is and it, it and it is a truly international competition. I mean, there are wife carrying teams that that you know will will congregate in fin- oh, the Finland. Finns take yeah. it very seriously. Right. There's a Finnish couple, and I've seen them, and they're kind of jerks. They <laughs> when they run on the course. They take no prisoners. Right. I've seen, uh, I've seen videos of these people, too, and it, it is, almost isn't fair. It's like watching Michael Jordan play a bunch of uh, seventh graders in basketball. Hoop. It's the equivalent of Jordan playing Nerf hoop. Yeah. I mean, it's... But we, we need to sort of set the stage here, uh, Saul. So in wife carrying, and I, I don't know how much variation there is, but what I've, when what I've seen, the husband has the wife in an, in, <laughs> in an inverted position on his back with her legs usually kind of wrapped around uh, his neck, if you can sort of uh, imagine that. So her, her head is kind of down where his butt is, and then her legs are wrapped around his neck. And she's usually wearing like a bicycle helmet or some kind of protective uh, headgear. Yeah. If she's smart. If she's smart, yeah. And, and then take it from there. It's kind of a steeplechase from there, right? That's pretty much it. I photographed uh, one in Wales. I photographed one in Maine. I haven't been to the one in Finland yet. I've seen couples that are, were on a honeymoon. <laughs> I've seen couples that were engaged. Mm-hmm. I've seen buddies or friends that just do it as a, as a whim. But marriage mm-hmm. separation has a completely different meaning during wife caring because you don't really don't want to drop your wife. Right. And so what happens is I, in the, the one that I saw anyway, they, they kind of burst off the starting line and run towards this water hazard. And, right. the, and the first thing they have to do is leap into this water hazard with the wife in this kind of locked position on the husband's back. And, and part of the, in the landing, you have to make sure you don't decouple, as you're saying. <laughs> right. You know, people are trying really hard. So wife carrying, and I'm not sure about the one in Finland, but the one in in Maine, definitely the victor gets his wife's weight in beer. So you're kind of weighing, so to speak, whether or not, you know, it would be nice to have a lighter wife so that you could run the course faster. Yes. But if you can carry a heavier woman, a heavier wife, uh, you get more beer. (laughs) I hadn't really thought it out that way. That's interesting because I, I, initially watching it, I thought, well, whoever has the lightest weight wife is going to win. But now I understand. Uh, oh, no, you're motivated to have a, a, right. a hefty wife. Right, yeah. exactly. Other metrics that I, I hadn't really sort of counted on. All right, so I thought the funniest thing to watch of what I didn't wa- I haven't watched everything that, that you've chronicled. Oh, you don't but, have that kind of time in your life. Well, yeah, yeah, I do, but I need to spread it out. Uh, <laughs> I, let me just put it this way. I don't want to binge watch weird sports, <laughs> all right? I don't think that's good. Watching ostrich racing, and when we say ostrich racing, it, you might think, oh, they get a bunch of ostriches together and they have them race. No, this is like the Kentucky 
Kentucky Derby, right? There's right. people trying to sit on the right. backs of the ostriches. It reminds me of the Belmont. They line up into the gates, and then they open up the gates, and and then the ostriches kind of go <laughs> wherever they feel like. <laughs> right. And, and it the, differs from horse racing in the sense that a much, much, much lower percentage of steed and jockey finish together, right? As you, as you watch the ostrich race, the jockeys are strewn along the course. It's closer to bull riding than it is to horse racing right. by and, far. And one of the other hazards I can just tell you from watching is that after you fall off your ostrich, one of the trailing ostriches may step on you. <laughs> right. It's like with NASCAR, people want to see a wreck. And as long as people are <laughs> fine, that's great. Ostrich racing, people want to see a wreck. Right. And so I'm going to ask you about one more thing. I mean, and we should say, first of all, that all of these things are watchable or viewable and digestible through the work of Saul Nealman. He's the author of Weird Sports and the upcoming Weird Sports 2. You're in Germany right now overseeing the publishing of Weird Sports 2. Am I correct? That's absolutely correct. Uh, In fact, my designer, Katerina, has allowed me to use her landline here. She's working late. Uh, We're doing the final touches, going to press on Thursday. There's a lot of bad things that can happen to you on a ski slope if you're just even trying to ski, right? Just trying to ski all by itself. Especially when I'm trying to ski. Right. It's it's a somewhat risky sport uh, as it is. That doesn't seem to be enough for some people. And and there are are a number of things that people you've discovered uh, have tried to do. And I did get to see a little bit of the downhill uh, barstool skiing, a sport whose very name contains, I think, that same element that we we talked about before. But explain. Drinking. It involves drinking. In fact... Like a lot of events, it was started at a bar. Legend has it, the ski slopes in in, uh, Montana, that this guy was hesitant to leave the bar. Mm. And uh, some young skiers said, hey, why don't you go skiing? And he goes, you know what, I'll go skiing when you put skis on my bar stool. (laughs) And that's how it started. And it's, I forget, I almost say it's been going on for 30 years, perhaps. And and it's even been modified. They do modified <laughs> bar stools. I saw an entire platform with a table and four chairs. I've seen <laughs> rock bands slide down. Uh, they're playing the entire time. Mm. So it's pretty remarkable. But for better or worse, it's really tucked away off the beaten path. And, uh, you know, one of the things that I love is traveling around. I get to know the world better. Uh, but I also go to places I would never go to. And a very small town in Montana, they host one of the best things in America, and, and very few people know about it. First of all, the thrill of victory, the agony of defeat, uh, Weird Sports, and the upcoming Weird Sports 2. How soon will, will, will Weird Sports 2 be out, and, and how easy will it be for the average person who doesn't know the secret password to obtain? <laughs> well, if someone slips me some money, I might get them an advanced copy, but uh, it'll be released in the States next spring. All right. And it'll be out in Europe this fall. So, Brandy Reddick, you're still with us, and, and you know we've been, we talked to you about uh, world extreme pencil fighting, but that's not the only sport that you're involved in. And we know from around here in Connecticut, boring old Connecticut, we've had something of a roller derby renaissance. And the people doing roller derby, I think, you know, are are maybe a different crowd than the group that was doing roller derby in the the 50s and 60s. So, so what can you tell us about your experience? What, first of all, who who are you skating for, and and what's it like these days? Switching gears quite a bit from pencil fighting and going into roller derby, they are quite different, as you can imagine. The resurgence of roller derby started in the U.S. around 2003 in Texas, and it spread slowly at first with four other leagues around the nation, New York, Arizona, and Seattle was one with the Rat City Roller Girls, and I was one of the founding members of the Rat City Roller Girls. When we first started, we were absolutely a weird sport, very unique 
many of the women who joined were young enough to either not even have seen roller derby or heard of it before, we didn't know how to play the game, didn't know the rules, what it was supposed to look like, so we made it up. Mm. And um, a lot of us, um, <clears throat> speaking for myself, who, who does have a very big, um, some might call it unhealthy interest in American professional wrestling, started to develop characters for the sport. And so when I skate roller derby, I do skate as Reddick to Rumble, and half of my face is painted like a skull. So I am very much uh, akin to a wrestling heel as I skate and very much a villain on the track. But when we first started roller derby, the resurgence, it was a lot more theatrical. But over the last 10 to 12 years that it's been coming back, uh, roller derby has really evolved into a real and legitimate sport, and there's actually a push to try to get into the Olympics. Um, there are leagues all over the world now. This has had an incredible resurgence, where, especially for women, but also men are getting involved. There are co-ed teams and um, all-men teams as well. So this is a case where uh, something that started out as one of Saul's very weird, obscure sports has turned into something at least striving to be quite legitimate. Somehow or other, the idea of Vladimir Putin trying to develop, you know, a top flight Russian roller derby team scares me. You know, the idea of <laughs> you know some kind of secluded compound out on the Russian steppes somewhere. Is oh, there broadcasting well, for roller derby? Yeah, well, I've, I've retired from roller derby, but if, if Russia gets the team together and challenges the U.S., I'll tell you what, I'm putting that paint back on. Oh, I see. Yeah, I, I, I see the film right now, you know, and they approach you and you're you're there uh, painting with, you know, watercolors on your easel. And you say, I don't do that anymore. <laughs> And they say, no, you've got to do it one last time for USA. 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 All right. We couldn't end on a more fabulous note. Saul Nealman, so great to talk to you. Brandy Reddick, great to make your acquaintance. Thank you so much for sharing weird sports, roller derby, extreme pencil fighting, and all the other stuff with us today. Thank you very much for having us. Thank you so much. All right. Bye-bye now. All right. Take care, Brandy. Bye, Saul. Well, that was great, but then we thought, you know, Saul Nealman, he needs some kind of sports theme music for his weird sports. So we called up the sports theme music guy we know, John Tesh, and I said, John, I know you're busy. I know your schedule is packed. I know you barely have time to sleep, but is there any way you could write something, some kind of sports theme for Saul Nealman? My theme was written over an answering machine, you know, back in the day when there were answering machines. And I sang the thing. I got an idea in the middle of the night. Mm Mm-hmm and didn't have any recording materials or machines with me or even any manuscript paper, and I just sang. I'm Kion Wolf, and when I won the Backward Running Egg Balancing Fish Toss World Championship, I had one mantra running through my head. Tesh, Tesh, Tesh. Isn't that right, John Tesh? As you're running, it's a thing that just sort of repeats forever in your, in your head. Yeah, John, that's why it's called a mantra. Come on, John Tesh.